the marking of song 767. We're certainly happy to do that. And we'll sing that song later in our service this evening, certainly as we make plans for, for that particular part of the service. Good to be back certainly tonight, as has already been announced, and thankful that God has sufficiently blessed us with health, both of body and mind, to permit us to gather in the way that we are this evening. You probably are already aware from the bulletin as well as the wall behind me that we'll be giving some additional consideration to questions and answers this evening. I know that we had a lesson last Sunday evening along this line as well, but as I mentioned, over the course of the last number of months, we have accumulated enough questions that have made this lesson tonight also an appropriately timed one as well. And may I also say there are additional questions yet to come, and hence we'll have to try to take care of those in the coming, in the coming Sundays, at least as, as circumstances permit. I would like to begin by thanking you for the questions that you put into that box or questions you share with me. For Without them, there would be none of the lessons along this line at least. This opening slide is one that asks us to, by way of introduction, I'll get Kale to help me turn that slide in with you. You'll notice some of the things that we'll initially consider bring us to this. As always, you provide the questions on the lessons like this one. They are not mine. I don't ever put my own questions into these lists. Rather, if I have a question, I guess, I will take the effort to prepare the sermon and simply present it. But I, just, I reserve these lessons to attempt to give response to the questions you have particularly asked. The first question tonight is one that the next slide will presently show you, and the question reads like this. What is the case in regard to the situation when an elder's wife passes away? Does he still meet the qualification to serve as an elder? Isn't that a good question? Again, the question is, under that situation when a man who is an elder, his wife passes away, does he continue to meet the qualification for serving as an elder? Would you be turning to 1 Timothy chapter 3? And we'll be looking at some of the passages found in that chapter as we attempt to turn our attention to this question. 1 Timothy chapter number 3. As you're turning to that page, let me make a few additional comments, if I might. First of all, we should ever keep in mind that in God's infinite wisdom, He structured the church exactly as it was His will for it to be done. And not only that, that structure included the leadership that the church enjoys. Human hands are not such that we provide any element to that matter of the leadership. Jesus is the absolute head, Colossians 1.18, now, He has delegated over individual congregations these men who oversee that local flock. We all know that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, there's a rather lengthy list of qualifications that a man must meet in order to be able to serve as an elder. I've asked you to notice about the middle of that slide. I'd like to read some of these and invite your attention to them. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. The word bishop, as it occurs there, is one of the New Testament words in reference to an elder. So he's talking now about those men that would occupy the office of an elder. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, 
vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, from that verse forward, he makes discussion about deacons, and since our question particularly referenced an elder, I'll just stop the reading at that point. One of the things you quickly notice near the beginning of that slide is a bishop, verse number 2, must be the husband of one wife. So our question that's been asked is an exceedingly pertinent one. What if the gentleman's wife passes away? As a single man, as one who is not married, does he still serve? Can he still serve scripturally as an elder over that local congregation? One of the first questions that I would invite all of us to consider, are there time restrictions on any of these? For example... When a man's installed as an elder, if he's not given to wine then, surely that has to be the case. What if he becomes given to wine later? Can he still serve as an elder? Suppose a man is temperate, installed as an elder, circumstances change, and he comes to the point where he is no longer temperate. May he still serve as an elder? You can ask that question about nearly any of them. There at the bottom, I have asked some of those questions of all of us because it seems to me the tenses of the verbs are critical. And the next slide will invite you to, to give consideration to it. The Greek verb that's used for all of these, that is to say the verb that is used to in the description of the action is continuous action in every case. None of them can be attached to only something that occurred at one point in time. Now, I would say, in light of some of them, that makes a lot of sense. For after all, we would never want an elder who, for instance, becomes in some way given to alcohol. He wouldn't have the sense, you see, to lead the congregation the way that it ought to go. But by the very same token, that certainly leads us to ask this one. Could there be reasons as to why it would be needful for a man to have a wife? if he is to serve as an elder scripturally? I would offer the answer is yes. Given the task and the work that has been given to elders, there are certain things that make his having a wife a very important thing. Consider this with me. We all understand that an elder is such that he is to watch over the flock that includes the female members just as much as it does the males. He thus needs to be sensitive to their needs, to their concerns, and to the matters that would otherwise trouble them. Now, obviously, a man often has a good sense of how the men may feel. He will have to depend on his wife to gain an appreciation, to offer an element in balance as to how to deal with all of the matters that might come before the members of that flock. And we all know that a wife is very often skilled in ways that a man is not. She thinks about things differently. She approaches things differently. 
he will have to depend upon her. Her sense of wisdom, her sense of prudence, especially in dealing with something that may arise that relates to one of the female members in particular. We all understand the dangers that could arise in that. I'm merely talking about just trying to serve their needs in the best way. Her sense will be vital. Consider this as well. At the end of verse number 2, there's another element stated about the qualifications of, a, of, a, of an elder. It says he has to be given to hospitality. May I make a par- fairly obvious suggestion? Most women have a far better practical sense of that than a man does. Mrs. Bybee, she would be far better at helping me serve in a role of hospitality than I could do by myself. And by that would be opening the house, having people for meals. She would be far better in terms of helping me be equipped to do that than I could ever do it by myself. The point is, that is a part of what an elder is expected to do. May I again say, a man who has lost his wife, without a doubt he may still be a fantastic Christian man. And he may have an element of knowledge and insight and wisdom, which will often be something at least that the other elders would want to ask about. But it would appear in my judgment he no longer serves to meet the qualifications of serving as an elder. He's lost his helpmate. He is no longer the husband of one wife. If we would wish to say, then, that that kind of consideration is something that certainly is worthy of a bit of reflection, I tried to anticipate some of those things as they occur near the bottom of that slide. Someone might be quick to say, well, doesn't it also say in other passages that he has to have faithful children? What if his children die? Does he then still serve? And can he serve scripturally as an elder? Would you take note of this? Those things can be rather different. If a man, again, as the head of his house, rears those children, and they have reached the age of being grown, they now live on their own. They don't live under his house, under his roof anymore. He has met that qualification, and for all time it served its purpose. The sole purpose is stated in verse 4. Did he rule his house well while they were there? Did he rule his house well to instill within them the character and the needfulness of faithfulness to the Lord? And if that was so, that meant that element in qualification for it, you see. That's not thus exactly the same as if his wife passes away. He needs her balance. He needs her element in wisdom. And he needs that which she can bring in helping him be the appropriate leader, especially of the female members of that congregation. The question that was asked was an exceedingly good one. It would appear that given again the nature of the verb tenses used and the presentation that these are intended to be ongoing, continuous qualifications which led me to the answer that I shared with you. Question number two tonight takes us to this one. This one has to do with the name of God. The question reads as follows. There are occasions when God is referenced by the name God. There are other times when the word Jehovah is used to refer to Him. I have heard it said that the word Yahweh is the proper and correct term. I am somewhat confused about which one to use in which situation. And how do I tell which one I ought to use at a given time? 
Isn't that a good question? I think we'd all readily agree that referring to God is a very critical matter, isn't it? And so at the very outset of this slide, I've asked you to note an, an initial observation. Under the banner of the Old Testament, there was something very vital that God attempted to instill within the children of Israel about this. It was the third of the Ten Commandments. May I ask you to note Exodus 20, verse number 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. It might be fair to observe that others of the Ten Commandments are things like, Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. The point is, we often have high regard for the other elements of the list. And yet, the third of the Ten Commandments, so significant to the children of Israel, they were never ever to take the name of the Lord in vain. And in fact, that verse ends with a bit of an explanation. God will not hold the person guiltless who takes His name in vain. Doesn't that indicate that God's mindful of and rather seriously considers the effect, at least in that day, of taking the Lord's name in vain? at least to appreciate some of those features, launches us into the considerations I would ask you to know. The person who's asked this question asks a great question. Should we use Jehovah? Should we use Yahweh? Should we use God? If we are allowed to use those, in what way should we use them? Because in seriousness, we would never, none of us, ever would wish to take God's name in vain and refer to Him in a way that he would consider inappropriate. You'll notice near the top of that slide, then, is four capitalized letters. In English, it looks like Y-H-W-H. Now, clearly, we all know in English there's no vowel in that, and determining a pronunciation would be an element of guesswork at best. And surely, you could insert various vowels and thus pronounce it in a variety of ways. But it's fair to observe how often that word occurs in the Word of God. I've tallied the number for you and invited you to notice 6,828 times that a word occurs, or at least that which is predicated upon what our English translators have translated into place. That word, of course, is a Hebrew word in its original consideration. That Hebrew word sometimes is referenced by a rather fancy long word that I've written beneath it, just so that if you ever encounter it, you'll know what it is. It's called the Tetragrammaton. Tetra means four, so it's a reference to these four letters as the basis of this grammatical presentation. Besides all that, you might notice one more time, no vowels within it. And so today, in an effort to pronounce it, we would have to, in essence, insert some kind of vowel sound, whatever that would be. Well, look at the way that the human family attempted to do that over the course of time. Many of those who were skilled in the Old Testament, one class of which would be those that I've, I've asked you to consider as the Hebrew scribes. The, the, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but M-A-S-O-R-E-T-E-S. -E -E the Masoretic scribes, if you please. 
they, of course, took great pains in an effort to translate properly and to give proper respect to the elements in the Hebrew language. Well, when it came time to then make a pronouncement, or at least some matter of that, they took very seriously the issue of Exodus 20, verse 7, never wishing to either themselves or encourage a mispronunciation in anybody else. For that reason, consider what possibilities you might have. Well, what if we were to select some vowels so that we then would have a way to pronounce it, at least in a repeatable and consistent way? Well, look at what the man, the human family did. As far as I'm able to tell, about the beginning of the 16th century, which you'll notice was only about 500 years ago now, you'll notice that they selected some vowels, inserted them, and from the resulting pronunciation, it's Jehovah. That's ultimately that which comes out of it. So you'll notice that was a long, long time after the actual Bible was written, and it was a long, long time after the basic features that came with the original presentation of the Word of God. But that usage and that production of the word Jehovah, again, I am not a Hebrew scholar. So part of this appears from the research I was able to do and from some of the comments that I was able to try to appreciate about the nature of that tetragrammaton. If you look at the vowels that must be inserted to yield the word Jehovah, it strongly appears in connection to the Hebrew that that would not have been likely to be the vowels that they would have considered. In other words, it would seem to me highly unlikely that the word you and I would call Jehovah is a proper representation of the initial tetragrammaton. Now, that's my assessment. Some who know more about that may be able to offer quite a bit more wisdom in that than I can. But what I do know is this. Turn back to Exodus chapter 3. For there we have God Himself addressing at least a part of this. In Exodus chapter 3, the following description ultimately takes place. If I might direct your attention then to the circumstances that prompted this discussion. The children of Israel at this time were in bondage in Egypt. They, of course, had cried unto God. Their rigor was hard and very demanding, and they petitioned God to do something about it. In the last three verses of chapter 2, that particular matter took place. And then, as the next chapter opens, we find a man named Moses at a burning bush, and God commissions him to go and bring my people out of Egypt. God heard the pleas of the Israelites and immediately set in course an initiative to bring that about. And He commissioned Moses to go. In the discussion between Moses and God, the following conversation took place. Let me begin reading in verse 11 of Exodus chapter 3. And Moses said unto God, Now remember, there's a bush burning here, and Moses is talking to God, who of course is in the bush, or who is represented in the bush. And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? 
And he said, notice this is God now talking, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. Now Moses replies, Verse 13, Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? We have directly a question that has bearing upon our question tonight. Moses said, When I go, I intend to go, but when I go, who am I supposed to tell them has sent me? Verse 14, And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thou shalt, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial unto all generations. Now there you'll appreciate that God Himself identified, Moses, here's my name. Here's a name that is respectful of my being, that's respectful of that which I am. And you'll notice the sense that rested behind it. And it's what I invited you to consider as you close that particular slide. This word you see... If you're reading in another translation, the translators in many cases try to have a sense of this. I read it that I am that I am. A reference to His eternal character, His everlasting significance, the fact that His existence does not rest on anybody or anything else. In other words, He is not dependent upon anyone or anything else. He simply is. And quite frankly, the Hebrew verb, as I understand it, is just as easily translatable with a future thrust, namely, I shall be what I shall be. God is immutable. He is the infinite, supreme sovereign in every way. He's ideal and thorough and perfect. He is truly awesome. Now in that sense, you'll note an additional consideration on this slide. You'll notice that there are some verses in the Bible that directly invite us to observe a distinction between ways that the English translators presented things. For example, in the 110th Psalm, if you'd like to turn over and read the way verse number 1 of that psalm proceeds, it highlights something very interesting. Psalm 110. As a bit of a side note, this is a very frequently quoted Old Testament passage that is alluded to very often in the pages of the New Testament. But it begins like this, The Lord said unto my Lord. We can stop right there. That's all we need to note. The word Lord appears twice, but you'll note they're different. In one of them, our translators wrote it with all capitalized letters. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The second one, only the L is capitalized. That is a, a rather strong indication that the initial words that appeared in the original language are not the same in the two. That capitalized version 
is Yahweh. In other words, it is an open and clear appreciation to the great being that God said, that's my name. May I suggest to you that it would always be appropriate to refer to Him as Yahweh. I can't think of any occasion when that would be inappropriate because that's, that's what He said His name is. Now, by the same token, in terms of how often we see the word God used in reference to Him, that too would certainly be something that would not be inappropriate. To recognize that this word God is the supreme one, the supreme consideration. For that reason, next on that slide, I have tried to develop a few matters that attach to that fact of I am, that I am. We are so accustomed to our existence, in fact, the existence of the things that we observe as being dependent upon other entities. But that isn't the case with God. Now, I know that that stretches the mind of many people to think that there's a being whose existence does not in any way depend upon anything in this universe, but rather He superintends over it. He's the one that created it. And it is thus subject entirely to Him and everything inside it. Maybe for that reason, as you close that, or near the bottom of that slide, notice again He said, My name in that regard, Moses, this name I'm giving you is forever. Now, as far as that name Jehovah, I tried to help you see that, again, as far as I'm able to tell, that one is a rather late invention on the part of men. It would appear to me that if that word is used in such a way that it truly, with mind's appreciation and understanding, does recognize and honor God appropriately, perhaps you could argue nothing out of the way concerning it. But many of the ways in which it seems that word might well be employed would perhaps border on an inappropriateness to it. So may I urge us perhaps an element of caution to think often about God and Yahweh, maybe being much more mindful and careful about the usage of Jehovah. That being said, what about question number three tonight? Question number three. There are a few more comments which I have shared with you all that I wish to share on that remaining slide, but the remainder, the remainder of our time tonight, question number three, the question has to do with this. Discuss what the situation would be if a person found him or herself married to a transgender person. Isn't that an interesting question? I strongly suspect that a hundred years ago, that would never have even been dreamt up by anybody. There was never a circumstance in which something like that, I think, would have even been imaginable. But sad to say that not only have we come to a time when the question is understandable, but we can even understand what would prompt someone to ask it. We live in a very confused time when it comes to sexual matters. And perhaps that's a quite an understatement by itself. But consider the following situation. We all know that a given person, at least under the banner of what the recognized tolerance of the day is, we're told that they're allowed to choose their sexuality. Though they were born as a male, they wish to identify as a female. 
Or though they were born as a female, they prefer to identify as a male. And we understand that lawsuits and other considerations have now often been put in place either to defend that particular set of choices or to help in fairness in response to it. But either way, what would need to happen if some individual who did not know it before enters into the marriage covenant that you and I would recognize, but later comes to find that this person who has been married is actually a transgender person? Again, a good question. So over the next few moments, let's give some attention to the Word of God that might offer us at least some guidelines on what we would say about this situation. The first set of facts are abundantly evident. And that is this. When it comes to marriage, the God of heaven legislates, and He alone with regard to it. It is an invention of His mind. It is not that over which the human family has any blueprint or copyright capability. Didn't Jesus say it like this in Matthew 19, 6? What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. So only God has the right to regulate and to legislate as to who can and who cannot enter into marriage. So we must allow Him to make the dictation. Who may enter into marriage? Jesus said it like this two verses earlier, Matthew 19, 4. He said, in regard to male and female, that's who God had addressed, wasn't it? In Genesis chapter 2, He had caused a deep sleep to come upon Adam. From his rib, He formed a woman. He brought her to the man, and to them we find this statement. Wherefore, as that man would appreciate, you cleave to your wife, not to your father, not to your mother. You cleave to your wife, and you too have become one flesh. Therefore, whether it was the original discussion of Genesis 2, whether it was the much later one found in our study of Matthew 19, echoed in Mark chapter 10, for example, we find it's a male and a female that can marry by the declaration of God. A man can't marry a man. A woman cannot marry a woman, according to the Word of God. Having said that, you may notice then that there are people who dwell in a very large amount of confusion. By definition, a transgender person is a person who wishes not to identify as the sex consistent with their biological one at birth. Now that by itself hammers home a very strong observation, doesn't it? It is possible to recognize sex at birth. We know that. In fact, the Word of God highlights it. Don't you still find it intriguing? In Leviticus 12, God gave laws to the children of Israel that were to be followed at the time a woman gave birth. And if she gave birth to a little girl, it was not the same as if she gave birth to a little boy. They could tell the sex of the baby at the time of birth. And that's what was anticipated to be descriptive of that boy or girl for life. Nowhere does the Bible ever describe sex, the gender if you please, in a fluid way. It is not something changeable. 
It is not something that the person is allowed to decide. It is that which is a part of God's creation of this being. And as this being comes into the world, it's merely identified. It is not set by man. For that reason, the degree of confusion in the mind of some is so very troubling. Now you'll notice further on that slide, the confusion that we've described is merely that. And it's very sad, isn't it? Perhaps this idea would help put things in order. We're all very aware that at a certain season of the year, it's not at all uncommon for people to put on costumes and dress up. We call it Halloween. And we might well see someone dress up maybe like a prince and go to a masquerade party. Could I ask this? What if on the next day, November the 1st, this same person continues to wear the masquerade and gives you the impression that he or she believes that they're still this prince? What if it goes on for the next day and for the next month and for the next year? Time and again, every time you meet them, they're wearing this masquerade and they're telling you that they're this prince. Well, on that Halloween day... Perhaps you thought it was funny. Maybe we identified, we understood why they're going to a masquerade ball, and maybe we can understand. But if it happened the next day, and the next day, and the next day, you soon would have become troubled. This person has a problem. This person is not identifying reality. And soon, probably some medical help of some sort would have been secured. May I offer that at least something similar to that's taking place here? A person, you see, is born male or female, and there's only two genders. I realize full well that the modern liberal discussion catalogs in excess of 20 genders. I understand that. But the claim does not harmonize consistently with the Word of God. God made two genders, and that's it. There's not a third possibility. And not only that, as we've already highlighted, it's not possible to fluidly change from one to the other, and we don't dictate it. Could I also say this? In that example I tried to give, this person who's masqueraded, and they merely have put on a costume, did it really change who they ultimately were? Well, of course not. You've got a mask over your face, and you wear some clothes, but it doesn't change your identity. It doesn't change who you identically were. May I suggest the same is true here. A woman could put on some men clothes, might even cut her hair, and might even give facial impressions, or maybe even have a change, surgeries on the body to make the appearance of male. But that does not change. The ultimate working of the mind... And it doesn't change the features characteristic of who you ultimately are. That's only on the exterior. It's only on the outside. You see, God made men and women different. They're, it's not just a matter of the body. It's a matter of the way the brain works, the characteristic ways in which the mind processes information. It's different. No surgery to the body is going to change that. May I suggest then you can't change gender from male to female or the other way around. Even if you have surgery, 
that puts in place a number of various and sundry parts of the body, that doesn't change the gender of the person. For those who have studied biology, you know that there are chromosomes. That, of course, the DNA sets forth. You can have all the surgeries you want to, and it won't change the XY chromosome pairs that are a part of the DNA. And that's what determines male and female. No surgery is going to change that. For that reason, you'll note near the bottom of that slide, what would need to happen in a case like this? If one were to come to find that the person to whom you're married is a transgender, then your marriage cannot meet the requirements. You're, a, you're married to a person of the same sex you are. And that again is not within the confines of the law of God. You would have to secure a divorce in the law of the land at least. Could we say that that's not at all unlike the features characteristic of the way the book of Ezra closes? Do you recall what happened then? The children of Israel in many instances had chosen to marry those whom God said you're not supposed to marry. May I suggest many times those relationships had yielded children. There was a father and a mother, and though they weren't supposed to marry, they had, and they had born children. God says you still got a divorce. You can't be in that marriage. Doesn't that at least highlight the seriousness of how God looks upon marriages? It is in that regard that Matthew 14, verses 1 and following, bring us a New Testament example. Do you remember the case of John the Baptist? What a man of nobility! And what a man of bravery and courage! He had the nerve to stand before a ruling official and say, The woman you're married to, it's not lawful for you to have her. That took courage. In that day and time when those particular ruling officials, they had the power of life and death in their hand. They could put you to death, and that's what happened. You and I remember that John, of course, ultimately was put to death because he had told this ruling official, the woman that you're married to, she belongs to your brother. She's married to him. It's not lawful for you to have her. Now, ultimately, you and I remember that a woman sensuously danced before Herod, and ultimately, because Herod was imprisoned at the time, I'm sorry, John was imprisoned at the time, that ultimately his head was chopped from his body. I say all that to say that John had the courage to preach God's law on this subject. And our current climate is a very challenging one. We all realize there's reaching a greater and greater appreciation for the manner in which this is probably going to be the subject that will be the one that brings the most trouble in the near term to the church of our Lord. Because our culture says that the things you and I have just noted, that cannot be, that's intolerant. It cannot be a loving disposition. And yet, the Bible says that God loves individuals, but He does not love sin. And homosexuality, transgenderism, things like that, they're sinful. They are not consistent with that which is favorable unto God. And so, we will stand firm on the Word of God, and we will hopefully pray for the well-being of those that they might come to realize that which ought to be appreciated.
And that's this. We enter this world with our sex determined. And it should be our thriving reality to use our talents in the concourse of that life to serve God the best way we can. If I'm a male, if I'm a female, my offices of possible holding are different. But I can serve the Lord in each capacity. And I can use my abilities to bring glory to Him and be a good example to those about me. Tonight we've looked at three questions. And those questions bring us to a slide of conclusion. On that slide, as we've looked at questions and answers, we have looked at a question dealing with the name of God, a question dealing with transgenderism or the case of marriage in that regard, and a question dealing with the qualifications of elders. As I mentioned earlier, there are other questions soon to come because I'm aware of them and I certainly haven't lost track of them. It's just that we haven't gotten to them as speedily as I would have preferred. But as we close this lesson tonight, may I close it the same way it began, with a reminder of that text in Luke 2.46. Do you remember even at the tender age of 12, Jesus, in the presence of the doctors of the law, was asking them questions? It is certainly an appropriate thing to ask questions, but to look in this book for the answer. And to realize that when God has decreed and dictated, that settles the matter. For that reason, tonight, we lift high the truth of God's plan of salvation because man hasn't selected it. If we could offer helpfulness tonight, perhaps prayers for someone who has walked astray from the faith, we'd be delighted to do that. We'll pray for your strength and your vitality in the Lord. But if... We all are in good standing with God. May we in faithfulness walk like that until the time of our departure from this earth. This evening, as this song of encouragement has been selected, if we could offer help or assistance in anyone, we would invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing.